Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Do you ever feel alone? Do you ever experience loneliness? Well, I have, more often than I care to admit. I'm reminded that when I turned 16 years old, I accepted Christ in my life. And at the time, I lived in households that did not worship God or acknowledge him by that matter. So I felt alone. And in the very same season, a month later, I moved to Houston, Texas on full scholarship to the Houston Ballet Academy. New Christian faith, new school, new food, new states. I finally break free of my family at 16, no less. I really felt alone. Eventually, after some extensive training, I transitioned into a professional ballet company. And with my faith in Christ lingering, I was suddenly on a new path to revival. All I wanted to do was worship him and seek his kingdom. But in this physical realm, I felt alone. Through much prayer, I soon realized that I was about to make a huge, huge, huge leap of faith. Confident with Christ in my heart directing me, eight years ago, I left Texas and planted all my big dreams into this enormous, busy, distracting, and very lonely city. With nothing but the blamed worldly conventional wisdom constantly distracting me, loneliness became a dangerous and destructive pattern. Now, two years of attending this, this church, Trinity, um, instead of being the first one out the door, I made another huge, huge choice. I went downstairs <laughs> into our fellowship hall. <laughs> a few small steps, but a huge leap none, nonetheless. The typical small meet and greet talk soon turned into wide open doors of opportunities for me. Answers to prayer. Tuesday night men's Bible study, a calling to Rwanda. Choir, worship arts. Um, I get to rekindle this talent or gift that I was given as a boy in a boy choir. I get to, this dancer can now use his voice to help all of us lead in our worship. There's a softball team. What? <laughs> I love to play ball. Um, yeah, and then I go to Rwanda. I go throw mud so someone can have a home. And little did I know where it was going to take me, up mountains. Um, but what is this, I asked myself. What, what is all this? This groundbreaking and extraordinary relationships begun in the Bible study. Accountability groups. Suddenly I'm up here with other professional and other not-so-professional people just worshiping God. And we get to utilize our voices together. It's It's incredible. So what is this? What is all this? This is kingdom living. And it's you and it's me. It's us together. We are never alone. As soon as we accept Christ in our heart, we will never be alone again. Leaps of faith at times may have you cross the state, the country, perhaps the world, or simply walk down a flight of stairs to the fellowship hall. 
My name is Gregory Brown. I am loved by God, and I am called to be a saint. Romans. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is this message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believed and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How, then, can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can we hear without someone preaching to them? And how can we preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Greg. Greg was my roommate in Rwanda a couple of summers ago. So, well done, Rumi. One of the criticisms of church in our country is that church is boring and irrelevant. And if, uh, if the comments and notes that I received after last Sunday's message or any indication last Sunday was not boring. Um, I had several people tell me that they needed to take me out for Mexican food and margaritas. Um, And if you're not sure where that comment comes from, then listen to the podcast and then maybe you'll want to take me out for Mexican food and margaritas. I'm not going to review the whole message, but the main theological point from Romans chapter 9 that Paul is trying to communicate is that whether you are from, whether you take a Calvinistic or an Arminian or an Arminian or a Lutheran or an open view of salvation, Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 is that God's word has not failed and that Whoever pursues righteousness by faith will be saved. And whoever pursues righteousness by works will not. You see, Paul's point in Romans chapter 9 is not to say that God chooses who will and will not be saved. His point is that God's word hasn't failed. And God's word has always said that those who put their faith in him will be saved. That's the point of Romans chapter 9. That's the point that Paul has been trying to make throughout this book of Romans. He's been beating that drum and beating that drum and beating that drum. And he's going to beat it some more in Romans chapter 10, which we'll get to in a moment. But before we do that, do we have any physicists in the room? One physicist. Awesome. Any, any physics majors? No, anybody else know what physics is? Okay. So to try, 
and, and you can correct me later if I'm wrong, but physics in a nutshell is the study of mass and its motion through time and space. Is that, and, and related energy things, right? Is that kind of it? Part of it. Physics, well, see, the truth is everything fits under the big umbrella of physics. I mean, everything fits under that. I read about a physics professor who was teaching about the law of the pendulum. You know the law of the pendulum? You know what pendulums are? They swing back and forth. So the law of the pendulum is that, that the length of the pendulum's arc will decrease which with every pass and in order to in order to to prove this to his students he first he asked do you believe that to be true everybody said yeah yeah i think that's true so then to prove that he he nailed a rope to the top of the wall just above the blackboard and he he tied a baseball to the bottom of the rope and he stood off to the edge of the backboard and he put a mark on the on the blackboard where the ball was, and then he let go of the ball. And it went through its arc, and when it came back, it didn't come quite to the same place, and so he put another mark where it came to. And, and so as it swung, every time it would swing back to him, he'd put another mark on the blackboard to show, to prove the law of the pendulum, that the, that the arc decreases with every swing. All right? So then he got to the end of that, and he said, so how many of you believe in, in the law of the pendulum? Everybody raised their hand. Next day, everybody comes in, and he, he asks, okay, how many of you still believe in the law of the pendulum? Well, yeah, nothing's changed, so everybody raised their hand. So he says, okay, follow me. He takes everybody down to the auditorium where he has tied a, a nylon rope from a rafter above the stage, and he's put a chair on one side of the stage. At the bottom of this nylon rope, he has tied a 100-pound weight. He gets a volunteer to come sit in the chair, and then he, he says, do you believe in the, the law of the pendulum? The guy says, yes. He takes the weight, and he pushes it over to within about an inch of the guy's face. He says, do you still believe in the law of the pendulum? And the guy says, yeah. And so he lets go of the weight, and it swings across the stage, and as it's swinging back, the guy dives out of the way. Now, did he believe in the law of the pendulum? He said he did. But if he had really believed in the law of the pendulum, he would have sat in the chair. Because he would have known that it it wasn't going to hit him. Right? See, what real belief does is it impacts your life. It changes how you live. Now, we can raise our hand because we've seen the marks on the chalkboard, but until we sit in the chair, we don't really believe. And that brings us to Romans chapter 10. Paul begins this chapter by beating this drum of salvation by faith. If you were here last week, you remember that at the end of chapter 9, he summarized his argument. In verses 30 to 32, he said, what, shall, what then shall we say? 
How do we wrap up everything that we've said about the sovereignty of God and and salvation? How do we wrap all that up? What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And then Paul adds this quote from Isaiah 8 that we didn't have time to look at last week. He says, They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Isaiah calls this rock, this stone, a hymn. Who is the hymn? It's Messiah. It's Jesus. See, Israel tried to establish their own righteousness through obedience to the law and rejected the righteousness that was offered to them by faith in Messiah. That's been Paul's message throughout the book. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he said, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And then to drive this home, he begins chapter 10 by saying, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, salvation by faith, and sought to establish their own righteousness, salvation by works, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, Israel had zeal, they had passion toward God, but even though they had seen the marks on the blackboard, they wouldn't sit in the chair. They said, no, we're not going to believe in righteousness that way. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to create a righteousness that is by works. So Paul goes back to beating the drum in verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Who? Everyone who believes. In 5 and 6, Paul compares law and grace. Verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting from Leviticus 18, which if you go and read the text sometime, you'll see it's this laundry list of rules. And Paul knows, or Paul's point is, nobody can keep all the rules. Every one of us in this room has at one point or another, when we've messed up, used the phrase, well, nobody's perfect, right? Okay, question, do we really need to remind people, right? Well, nobody's perfect, duh. No, we all know that. Nobody's perfect. And Paul's point is that nobody's going to be saved by keeping the law because nobody can keep the law perfectly. 
You can't do it. So verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Here he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And he's taking these two impossible things, going up to heaven to bring Christ down, bring Messiah down, or going down into the depths of death to, to bring Christ up. He's saying, you don't have to even try to do, do those two impossible things because God has already done them for you. Some of you have heard this before. That the righteousness that is by law is spelled D-O. Do. Do this, do that, do this other thing, and you will be saved. Be a good person. Do, 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 and you will be saved. But the righteousness that is by faith is spelled D-O-N-E. Done. Jesus has done all that needs to be done. See, nobody needs to ascend to heaven to bring Christ down. Why not? God's already done it. We call it Christmas. Nobody needs to descend into the depths of death to bring Christ up. Why not? God's already done it. We call it Easter. You see, everything that needs to be done has already been done. You don't have to believe, or you don't have to do, you just have to believe because in Christ it is done. Verse 8. Well, what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, salvation is not earned through the keeping of the law because nobody's perfect. Salvation comes when you place your faith in Jesus Christ who atoned for your sin by his death on the cross and he justified you before the Father when he rose from the grave. Verse 10, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Belief and profession go hand in hand. Belief is internal. Profession is external. Belief is the root. Profession is the fruit. If you believe, you will go public with your faith. If you believe, you won't just raise your hand but you'll actually sit in the chair. If you really believe, it will, it will impact your life. And one of the ways it will impact your life is that you will want to profess your faith to others. When you do that, verse 11 says you'll never regret it. As the scripture says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is a quote from Isaiah 28, 
which just reiterates the quote he made at the end of chapter 9 from Isaiah 8. That the one who puts their faith in Messiah, the one who puts their faith in Jesus, will never be ashamed. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For, quote, everyone who? Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote from Joel chapter 2. You may have noticed that Paul's quoting a lot of Old Testament. Right? If you read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, you will find that Paul quotes the Old Testament 40 times in three chapters. Why? He wants them to know, he wants us to know that this salvation by faith thing is not a new thing. The marks have been on the blackboard since the beginning. It's not new stuff, it's Old Testament stuff. And just, I mean, yes, Israel was the first recipient of God's divine grace. And they were to be the ambassadors of God's divine grace. But they were not the sole possessors of God's divine grace. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Naaman the Syrian. You see it in in Rahab the Canaanite. You see it in Ruth the Moabite. You see it in the Ninevites. You see it in, in all of these Gentiles who came to faith. Salvation is for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Why? Because it's not about do. It's about done. And everyone who puts their faith in Messiah, whether they are before Messiah or after Messiah, finds their salvation in Him. And Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 3. So what's the question that, that naturally then comes? Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How, how can somebody come to faith in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? They need somebody to share with them and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? You see, Paul's logic is that if, if the gospel is going to be available to everybody, then God has to send messengers to everybody. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is a verse from the gospel of Isaiah, which is what Isaiah really is, a gospel. I'm sure if we went around the room and I asked you how you came to faith. You would have one or two people who hold a very special place in your heart because of the message they proclaim to you. I've got a couple. They are dear to us. And that's what Paul's saying. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So logic necessitates that if people need to hear people then need to speak 
and for somebody to speak, God, need, God needs to send that word. God needs to send that gospel to everyone. The question is, did the Jews really get that gospel? Did Israel, before Christ, really have this message? Well, Paul tells us, starting in verse 16, But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? That is a quote from Isaiah 53. Anybody remember what Isaiah 53 is about? Messiah. It is the most marvelous piece of prophetic literature about, about, the, about Jesus that we have in our Bible. I'm going to read a few verses of Isaiah 53. And I just want you to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind, bring to your heart, everything that you know about Jesus from what is proclaimed 600 years before Jesus would come. This is from Isaiah 53, which begins, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's 600 years before Jesus came. And the text begins, who has believed our message? You see, Isaiah brought the message about Jesus, but not all of Israel accepted it. Paul goes on in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Friends, God's plan for communicating the truth about Jesus is for believers to tell others. That's his plan. After the resurrection, before the ascension, in Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus is speaking to his, his followers. And he says, um, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my what? Witnesses. You're going to tell people. You're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to New York City. Rough translation. <laughs> Jesus' plan was not that God was going to be here in physical presence to tell others about him. He's not going to send angels to tell others about him. His plan is for you and for me to tell others about him. As Paul says in verse 10, it is with your heart that you believe. And if you truly believe, you won't just raise your hand, you'll sit in the chair. If you truly believe, you will profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You will proclaim him. Not you should proclaim him. You will proclaim him. You say, well, Keith, I witnessed by my life. Kind of. You give credibility to your spoken message with your, with your life. But God has ordained that his gospel is to be an audible message and we are the people sent to tell it. Absolutely, we bear witness of him with our lives. But in order for people to come to faith, as Paul says here in verse 17, we must herald the message. Faith in Jesus comes from hearing the message. That is God's plan, and there is no plan B. Verse 18. But I ask, did they, Israel, not hear? Of course they did. And here he quotes from Psalm 19, which is a declaration that that the knowledge of God will go out to the whole earth. He says, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Paul is saying not only did God proclaim himself to Israel, but he proclaimed himself to the whole world. Verse 19, again I ask, did Israel not understand? Paul said, how did you miss this? He quotes from Deuteronomy 32, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Friends, he's talking about most of us. Any Jews here this morning? We had a couple in the first service. Okay, so he's talking about all of us then. See, what God did is God said, I'm going to send the message of salvation by faith. I'm going to send the good news. I'm going to send the, the, the gospel of the Messiah to Israel first. But when they reject it, I'm going to let the Gentiles have it. Because hopefully when they see the response of the Gentiles, then they'll, they'll come home. That's what he says in, in verse 20. And Isaiah, and Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. You see, the message of the Savior was first proclaimed to the Jews But after they rejected it, God saw fit to reveal himself to the nations of the world. God has done that, and God is still doing that. But concerning Israel, God says, 
or he says, verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul says, even though they've rejected me, I continue to have my, my arms open, hoping that they'll come home. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. Friends, the marks bearing witness to the truth of salvation by faith have been on the blackboard since the beginning. If you really believe the law of the pendulum, you will sit in the chair. And if you really believe the truth of Jesus, you will, not should, but you will tell others about him. See, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Friends, if we're going to see revival in this city, in this nation, in our world, we got to share the message. We've got to herald the message of Jesus. And this summer, right after we finish this Roman series, we're going to spend six weeks talking about how to do that. How, can, how we can be effective in sharing our faith with others. In the early 60s in our country, our nation was in turmoil. Um, anybody remember the early 60s? <laughs> some of you are not from this country, so you don't know about it. Some of you were not born. Some of you smoked your way through the early 60s. Um, Fred, uh, one of our elders. Uh, so some of you are kind of fuzzy, hazy, purple hazy on the early 60s. The early 60s were a very tumultuous time in our country. We were in the middle of the Vietnam War. In 1961, our, well, our involvement was just escalating because in 1961, our troop level, our troop levels in Vietnam tripled and then they tripled again in 62. There was all of this, uh, this outcry in our country and, and anti-war stuff and, and, you know, just political unrest. It was, our country was a mess. And it was into this mess that there was an American folk trio. Um, anybody remember their name? Peter, Paul, and Mary. And they sang this song, which became part of Americana, which was really kind of the anthem of hope for our country. Remember the song? If I had a hammer, if I had a mallet, if I had some way that I could, could shape, that I could get rid of justice and war and all this stuff, if I had some way to reshape our country, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening. I'd hammer all over this land. I'd hammer out warning. I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters. Oh, over this land, right? If I just had a hammer, 
I had a mallet that I could get rid of all the war and the injustice and the hatred and the violence and I could create peace and harmony and love and justice, if I could do that, I'd never stop doing it. If I had a bell, if I had that, that symbol of freedom, I'd ring it in the morning, I'd ring it in the evening, I'd ring it all over this land. If I had something that would just proclaim the truth of freedom, I'd, I'd just keep ringing it. If I had a song, if there was something in my heart that, that I couldn't contain, that I could just sing that would, that would bring hope for people. If I had a song, I'd sing it in the morning, I'd sing it in the evening, I'd sing it all over this land. And then they get to the, the last verse. And they say, I have a hammer. And I have a bell. And I have a song to sing all over this land. The only problem was Peter, Paul, and Mary never told us what it was. And nothing ever really changed. All those 60s guys traded in their tie-dye t-shirts for button-downs. And they went to work for Goldman, Shearson, Lehman, Smith, Barney Brothers or something. And they made a whole bunch of money, but they didn't change anything. And they're not singing or hammering or ringing anything. They had great aspirations and ideals. And that though they talked about justice and freedom and love, they never really found it. Friends, when you hear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He has died on the cross and risen for you and that if you simply trust in Him and call on Him, then you will be saved when you hear that and really believe that, guess what? Now you've got a hammer. And now you've got a bell. And now you've got a song to sing all over this land. And you ought to be singing in the morning. And you ought to be singing in the evening. You can sing about justice because justice has been met on the cross. And you can sing about freedom because in the cross, Jesus Christ has freed you from the bondage and the penalty of sin. And you can sing about love between your brothers and your sisters because in the cross, Jesus Christ modeled a love that should be the hallmark of the community of faith. Friends, anybody who calls will be saved. But they can't call unless they've heard. And they can't hear unless we tell them. We have a song, so let's sing it. Let's sing about the justice of the cross. Let's sing about the freedom of the cross. Let's sing about the beauty of the cross. And let's sing it all over this land. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. Lord, I'm grateful that it's not due because often I don't. Often I can't. But what I can't and what I haven't, you have done for me, for us. And Lord, I pray that that all of us in this room would, would believe that. We wouldn't just see the marks on the chalkboard and raise our hand, but we would sit in the chair. We would believe. And it would change us to the point that we, we can't help but sing our song. Because it is a song of freedom and justice and hope and love. And there's nothing else like it. And Lord, I pray for the person in this room this morning that that maybe has tried to, to find righteousness the due way. I pray, Lord, that today they would open their hands and, and receive the truth that it's done. They would put their faith in you. Lord, we want to celebrate what you have done for us in the cross. And so we come to the table this morning to celebrate the doneness of our salvation because of your great love for us.